Good morning. Everybody seems kind of subdued today. I guess it's the weather. We are in the book of Psalms. Um, this is the last class of this particular uh, quarter. As I mentioned last week, we'll be moving our study into the multi-purpose room on Wednesday nights starting next week. Uh, so that would be, I think, December the 6th. Um, I mentioned to you before that the book of Psalms in its ancient collection and as it's still viewed by the Jews is uh, a psalm book with five sections. And we are in the second section. Uh, optimism says that we might look at one in the third section. Um, and that will uh, it, it, I'm handing you out a new sheet. It looks a lot like the older sheets, uh, but the psalms that we've already looked at have been removed and we have um, uh, newer psalms. So if you look at that one on the back side, that's Psalm 73. If we get that far, that means that we will have gotten into what they call the third book of the fifth uh, book of Psalms. But I want to back up into Psalm chapter 56 this morning. And let me see if we'll... I'm not seeing... There we go. We'll need... Yep, okay. There we go. All right. You'll notice that uh, fighting for faith when fought by foes, if you looked ahead, you see that you have a whole lot more on your sheet than there is on the PowerPoint. Um, and what we're going to do oftentimes when we look through the Psalms is to see some of the background, some of the historical tie-in, as there often is uh, with the Psalms. A lot of this is given to us back from ancient Jewish commentaries. Uh, sometimes, like remember Psalm 51 last week, there's no doubt uh, with the tie-in to David's sin with Bathsheba, uh, oftentimes there's enough circumstantial evidence for us to be able to tie this to other uh, uh, parts of the Bible, especially the historical books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, some of the Psalms, when we get in the next quarter, the Psalms in the Psalms of Ascent, some date to the period of the exile, which is many, many hundred years later, uh, and uh, uh, is going to be covered in books like Daniel and Jeremiah and some of those. Um, but again, as I've asked you on other occasions, if you look at the top of your psalm in Psalm 56, there's probably some kind of superscription or title. Does anybody, as you look in your Bibles, and I, I certainly want us to do that as we go through, is to be looking in the psalms uh, alongside of what we say about them. What do you have over Psalm 56? All right, so you have quite a bit there, all right? Um, what version is that, or, or what? NIV. NIV. Okay, so what they'll do is they'll sometimes uh, we'll talk about one of the. Th um, nobody probably else. Most most of you don't have something about a dove, do you? Uh, you do. Okay. What is it? New American. New King James. So uh, what that what they're doing is they're taking a Hebrew word and they're translating it for us, and we'll talk, say more about that. But you'll notice that Miss Dolores had quite a bit over her psalm. Uh, there's some musical directions. There's some historical tie-in. Uh, anybody else have some of the history as to what this psalm is supposed to be about or in connection to? All right, so you remember we say oftentimes your study Bible especially will give you kind of what the gist of the psalm is about. Uh, that's a pretty good summary. So read it again, Dale. What was it? Prayer for relief from tormentors. You'll notice the title I gave it, Fighting for Faith When Fought by Foes. I think... Uh, that's exactly what's being described there. Historical connections. When the Philistines captured him in Gath. So if you kind of want to put this in your biblical timeline, Saul is still officially king. 
Samuel has already come and has anointed David as king. This is in that same period of time. David's on the run. David has had multiple opportunities to kill Saul. He hasn't taken it. Why didn't David kill Saul when he had every opportunity? Even his men were telling him, here he is. God's put him into your hands. Um, Take him. Why doesn't he do it? Yeah, he recognized Saul as God's anointed. Who had put Saul on the throne? God had. So who was going to coronate him and enthrone him when it was time? God would. All right, so that's, that's always helpful for us. It can be difficult for us, no matter where we find ourselves politically. Um, we, uh, you know, we, we may think strategically, if this, X, Y, and Z happens, then this can take place. And we're all concerned about, you know, or, or maybe what did or didn't happen in elections and that sort of thing. When you get to the bottom line of it all, who has put that person in power? God does. Well, wait, 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 let, me, let me ask you. I'm not saying it's ever happened. But let's say that in a particular nation that people through uh, various means of corruption were able to get themselves into power. Who is ultimately responsible for that? Not, not any wrongdoing. But who puts people... Daniel 2.23, if you want to write that in your Bible. Who, puts, who sets kingdoms up and who sets kingdoms down? God does. So the question we sometimes don't ask, let's say you don't like a particular political leader. That doesn't mean that there's something special about them or that it's an indication of anything um, uh, politically. It could be a spiritual judgment. Let's say we have what would be objectively looked back on 100 years from now as a morally depraved, horribly corrupt leader. Do they ever have those in history where the church existed? They called that the Roman Empire, didn't they? Why was that allowed to happen? Sometimes, the minor prophets will often say this, sometimes that's a judgment on the nation. Right? It's a refining. It it is, we get the leaders collectively as a nation that we deserve. And here's as political as I'll get. Wouldn't you say in about the last 15 years that we've not had some wonderful choices, no matter what uh, party affiliation you have? It's pretty, pretty terrible uh, overall. What does, that, what does that maybe indicate? Well, all you got to do is look at the moral state of our nation. Look at where we are. And so we get the leaders that we deserve. Anyway, Paul, saw, and I promise that's my last. The soapbox is, is kicked out of here. We're going to stay in the, in the Psalms. But this is at a time when David is on the run from Saul, a wicked king whom God has put in place, and he's not taking God's position. And in that period of time, he is allowed to be taken by the Philistines. All right, Psalm 56. Let's look at some of, you'll notice in your notes here, we have some of the notes uh, that we find in the chapter. The first thing that I heard Mr. Dolores say this, this is notes from the choir director. Um, These were songs that were sung by Israel. And so the notes involve possibly a tune. tune. There are terms that come up that we don't exactly know. It's not in our vocabulary in English, and so we kind of have to draw deductions. Um, You may have over your uh, chapter, according to Jonath Elam Rohokin. Anybody else have that besides me? Okay. All right. Now, the exact translation of that is unclear, but it's thought to be just what Ms. Dolores read, and I think somebody else... um, uh, Lori said she had that over her Bible. The dub of the distant terebinths. All right, so terebinth is a tree. 
And so the title of this psalm is written to the tune of the doves of those distant trees. All right, the second thing that we can observe about it is that it's a miktam. Anybody see that? M-I-K-H-T-A-M, Hebrew word? Okay. Uh, Long story short, uh, many believe that this word refers to atonement. And so this is a psalm of or about atonement. What does the word atonement mean for you? What does it mean to atone for something? Okay. So it's a song about God paying for that which we need. So often you think of atonement with connection to sin, right? Um, and then third, it's believed to have the historical background which Miss Doris has already shared with us. If you want to write a, a biblical reference next to that, it's 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10 and 11. And so uh, it's 1 Samuel 21, 10 and 11. If you take all that together, then this psalm is very well a song of a solemn tune written about atonement when David is running from Saul and in a perilous situation. So for David, deliverance, the payment that he's longing for God to give is to allow him to be preserved and to live even though he has a powerful man who is seeking his life. Now, you and I will never be the king of any nation or queen of any nation. Pretty, pretty sure, certain that's going to be the case. But do we ever find ourselves tormented? Do we ever find ourselves oppressed? You ever been misrepresented? You ever had people to vilify you? Maybe for no other reason but that they don't like your convictions or that they don't like the fact that you're a person of faith because you're trying to live the Christian life. And as a result of that, they make life miserable for you. You ever had that happen on the job? You ever have, ever have, a, have that happen in school? You ever have a neighbor that once they found out that you were a Christian and trying to live the Christian life, that they tried to make life a little harder for you? It's going to happen here and there as we live the Christian life. I think there are some, some great takeaways for us, but I want us just to very uh, briefly analyze the psalm. And to do that, I'd like for us to read it. So Psalm chapter 56 is our psalm. It is a rather brief psalm by comparison. Um, Jeremy, you read nice and loud if you'll read Psalm 56 for us. Okay, all right, so the first point of emphasis, it seems here, is on his foes, on his enemies. Uh, he's dealing with some enemies. And how does David describe these enemies? How does he talk about them? How do we know that these are enemies? What does he say in the psalm? They all right, they swallow me up. Uh, what verse is that? One, all right. Um, different versions, it's interesting. On some of the Hebrews in an elastic language, and so there's a range of translation. Anybody have something different than swallowed up in verse 1? They, they press their attack. All right. They're in hot pursuit. All right. What, what version is that? Okay, verse 1. What, somebody said something over here? They trampled. All right. Um, there's, there's two parts to that verse. So that first phrase, it's a hot pursuit, um, trampled. What else? What in the second part of the verse? Pressing or oppressing. All right, so I have uh, the New American Standard. A man has trampled upon me. All right, so you still have the same idea in, um, in the... Uh, uh, David's analysis of what's going on against him, he's saying they've already caught up to me and they've done damage to me. Well, we could look at 
David's life and we could see that some of that had taken place and it's certainly going to take place again later in his life. Now, uh, I love that translation of he's in hot pursuit of me. That really describes what's happening in 1 Samuel very well. That here is David who at every turn he's going to say, you know, my, my enemy's around the corner. At any moment this may happen to me. So there's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of peril. There's a sense of danger. Do you see it anywhere else besides verse 1? Yeah. Yeah, they, they just they persist. They keep pursuing. You think about a bloodhound. They get the scent of the trail, and they don't, they don't stop until they either tree their, their prey or if somehow the, the, the one who's running is able to escape. And so here's David trying to stay off the trail. I think that's good. Um, they, they fight me all day and proudly. How about further on down in the psalm? What else? Okay, what verse is that? Verse 5, they twist my words. I have to distort my words. What else? All right, their thoughts are against me for evil. Verse 5, look at verse 6. They lie in wait. They lurk. They watch my steps. They've waited to take my life. And then he identifies them at the end of the psalm in verse 9. They're my enemies. If you ever find yourself opposed by somebody because of your faith or because you're trying to live the Christian life, remember, you're not the first You're not alone. So even in the days of old, you have God's people who are put through trials because of their faith. So is this an Old Testament idea or is this a New Testament idea? Does that still happen when you're not a king running from another king? Somebody turn over to James chapter 1 and read verse 2 through 5. This to me is one of the most remarkable ways that any book of the Bible starts. It's written to Christians. In fact, it's perhaps we think with good reason that it's the earliest of the epistles. And so Christianity is early on in its days. So if you think about the early days of Christianity, you have the establishment of the church in Acts chapter 2. The church is growing. It's just running along. It has some internal issues and some internal problems. They're solving that in biblical ways. And then pretty early on, what happens to unsettle the church? Just one name. What's his name? Saul. And as a result of this, what takes place with the church? Yeah, so you have people who come from all over the place to Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast, some who didn't live there, and they stayed there for a while uh, while they're learning more about the doctrine of Christ, this new teaching about Jesus. And as they're there and they are growing in number, here comes Saul who is wreaking havoc on the church. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4 says that what happens to them? All right, so after they've grown in number and Saul comes in and does his thing, what does Luke say about the, the Christians? They were scattered abroad. And what did they do? They preached the word. All right. So it's going to be about at this time that James is going to be writing his epistle. So if somebody has James 1, 2 through 5, what does it say? Yes, ma'am. All right. So what's remarkable about the way James starts this letter? Okay, so certainly that's the, that's the bottom line. That's the takeaway. No matter what you're going through, God is with us. But what counsel does James give us when we're dealing with our trials? How, does, how do you make sense of that? Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. All right, so we can break it down. What's various trials? What does that fall into? Tell, tell me some examples of some trials that a Christian may go through. I mean... I'm not asking you for obscure Bible facts. Tell me about what's going on in life. Okay, so we're just not shown respect. 
So put all that into one word. What would that be? Persecution. Persecution. All right. So we can face persecution. Various trials. What's another kind of trial? Health. Okay. Financial. Health problems. Financial. Any other kind of trials? Family issues. Okay, spiritual struggles. I mean, we could we could continue to build the list. This is a pretty good... This now is what I would call various. My brethren, be miserable and let everybody know about it when you encounter various trials. My brethren, realize that there ain't nobody else who's going through what you're going through, so make sure everybody knows how targeted and isolated you are because you're going through various trials. Whine, complain, and be hard to be around. What does James say? I like the the way the translation says it there. Count it pure joy. When you encounter various... So here's the question. How do you do that? What allows you when... If the foe is tangible like Psalm 56 or like it can be in our lives, 1 Timothy 3, 12, Acts 14, 22, when we're being persecuted... Or if it's physical health. Well, I think Read it. Mortal. Yeah. God is yeah, there's a great contrast. That's it. That's it. And, and you're telegraphing a little bit where we're going, but even when we're looking on the other side of this, of whatever the flesh is, whatever's in my flesh or from the flesh that's happening to me, I realize that there, I can count it all joy. Why? Well, look at the context in James 1. It produces something good in me. It produces endurance. It it makes my faith complete so that I'm lacking nothing. See, there's benefits in these kinds of things. Yes, ma'am. Bonnie? I think of happiness. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Happiness is presented as a... Say it again. Right. So it's a regardless of circumstances. It doesn't mean that that, uh, I'm in a pep rally at the time. But it means that there's something deep and abiding that's divine that allows me to get through that and to see benefit, to be strengthened on the other side of that. So it seems to me, especially in light of what we're going to see in the rest of the psalm, that David is saying no matter those... and, And I realize as I look out at you that you're dealing with various trials. They may differ. The person that's sitting 12 inches away from you may be dealing with something completely different than you are. But if you're not, you're not far from some trial. And what David is saying is that there are going to be foes. And what we can see in the rest of the psalm is what um, what positive product there is from that. But believing, right. So there's conditions. And then you look through James and you'll see our response in that. God's waiting to give that to us, but it comes through the investment of, of faith. Great point. Let me also point out this, that not only is he oppressed by enemies, that there are these foes, but there's the reaction it has in him, and we need to understand that this is natural. There's the fear. Now, he mentions it twice in the psalm, once at the beginning and once at the end, and you'll see a transformation that's taking place as he's getting perspective. And I want you to think about the psalms in this way. And we'll see it if we get to Psalm 73. I'm not hopeful. But if you look at how it begins and how it ends, there it's two different perspectives. 
There's the perspective that I have when I'm first starting to think about my trial. As I'm first confronting the difficulty, whatever it is, and I may be down, I may be negative about it, but then there's the perspective I have on the other side of that when I've thought about it. When I've thought about putting God into the equation, what happens on the other side of that? So you look at verse 3, and what does David say regarding his fear? Yeah, he's saying essentially... He's confessing the fact that there's times of fear in his life. When I am afraid. What does he say in verse 4 and verse 11? Okay, does he say anything about fear in either of those verses in verse 4 or 11? Huh? I will not fear. I will not be afraid. What's the difference? I'm afraid. I will not be afraid. Of course, it's you, God. It's you. And so he's, he's frightened by the actions of the evil ones. We understand that. If you have ever been targeted by someone, if you've ever been in the throes of some difficulty, even because of your faith, and here's something that challenges all of us. It challenges me. Acts 14 and verse 22 says that we, Christians, these are new Christians in fact, must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. In 1 Timothy, we didn't look at that last week, but in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 12, you, you, you've heard this passage, yes, and all who live godly, in Christ Jesus, what, what, what will happen? Shall do, shall what? Suffer, I heard it, suffer persecution. All right, and so as a part of living in this life, and, it, and you don't, don't think about a whip on your back, or your home getting burned down, and you're having to leave the city in which you live, but it happens in, in different degrees and forms. It's going to cause you to be unsettled. But the difference is God. All right, so there's the faith, and we've already mentioned that. I will put my trust in you, verse 3. I have put my trust, verse 4. This I know, verse 9, there's a confidence. In God, I've put my trust, verse 11. I will render thank offerings to you, verse 12. So when times are the most difficult in our lives, it's then that we must step up our trust and confidence in God's ability and his willingness to help us and to rescue us. He's faithful, and he is with the faithful. That's what David is as he contemplates. It's what he's coming to discover. And then there's the fortitude. What God provides. It's beautiful. I wish we had time to drill down on this, but we'll see this in some other Psalms. There's God's grace in verse 1. There's God's strength in verse 7. Cast them forth and put them down. God's able to take care of this. There's God's care and concern. In verse 8, I love this passage. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Have you thought about this passage before? Have you stepped back and thought about what uh, the psalmist is, is picturing for us? Have you ever thought about that? Now this is what they call anthropomorphism. If you want to impress your friends in Bible talk this week. All that means is anthropos. What does that stand for? Some, somebody in education. Anthropos. Anthropology. It's the study of what? Man. All right. So anthropo, that's to dealing with man. Anthropomorphism means, or that you think about um, uh, something that morphs or changes. And so when we see anthropomorphisms, it means giving God human traits. All right. So none of us are envisioning God tangibly having a real bottle. Um, I don't think there's anything. That's what David's trying to create for us. It's accommodative to help us to see. But step back for a moment and look at the imagery. 
Here's God looking down over his child who's going through various trials and as he sees the, the weeping and, and the torment and the, and the devastation of heart, God says, I care so much about you, I'm taking the tears that you shed and I'm placing them in my bottle. What would be the purpose of that? Okay. Well, certainly. Yeah. And there's a lot of different ways that you could say that, right? But is there, is there any imagery that comes to your mind or that makes you think of when God is taking your tears and he's placing them in a bottle? Yes, he's storing them. But what does that suggest? Okay. He's done, they're not with us anymore. But I think there's also something to that. It's in that remembrance. There's that care. There's that remembrance, but it's precious to him. I don't know if y'all ever collect things in bottles. Uh, that, that you want to hold on to. You don't, you don't want to let them go. He doesn't, he doesn't delight in the fact that we've shed them. He cares. He wants them. He, he, wants, he, he has that uh, concern about us. But it's personal. He's got my tears in his bottle. He holds on to them. They're innumerable. That's right. That's right. And so what helps me when I'm going through difficulties is knowing that God is personally aware that God, now God may be allowing this thing to go on in my life in order to uh, make me complete those things we saw in James chapter 1, but don't see him as either delighting or being disinterested. He sees and he cares greatly. And he holds on to that. And he takes it away. And then we see God's deliverance. You have delivered my soul, verse 13. I think that Psalm 56 is an Old Testament reflection on Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? You do not have a trial. You don't have a problem that's bigger than God, that's stronger than God. So here's the question. Is someone targeting your faith, you because of your faith? Are you in an emotional valley? Are you in a spiritual valley? Do you feel isolated or alone because maybe you're the only Christian in your family? Does it seem like sin and evil are winning in our world? Imitate David's process and you can expect David's result. As Paul would say later in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37, we have been made more than conquerors through Christ. It's going to end well. So wherever you are in that journey of struggle and trial, you can be confident about its outcome. Any other thoughts? on? Yes, sir, Daryl. So we're talking about putting perspective on the opposition that we face. What are we choosing to put as the focus of our concern and our fear? Have we placed that on what man's doing or are we placing it on what God's doing? And I want you to think about how this helped David in this very difficult time. 1 Samuel 21 is in the early stages of his running from Saul. He's going to have to do it for quite a bit of time before Saul is killed up on Mount Geboa in uh, the last chapter of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 31. And so he has, has got to uh, understand, grasp, and live with this knowledge that man's, man, maybe Saul is going to catch him. Maybe Saul will kill him. But he can't take his soul. Instead, he's going to put his focus on his trust in the one who has both body and soul in his control. And that's God. Great thought. Yes, ma'am, Miss Dolores? That's right. That's right. And, and I love that. If you want to just put a footnote and put Psalm 22, um, it's the Messianic Psalm above all others. And you have Jesus focusing on that Psalm while on the cross. He quotes it on multiple occasions. Because it wasn't what was happening to him in the moment. It was what he could see 
at the end of that. And so I love how the psalmist captures that. It's great perspective for us. 33 years. Now, there some of you haven't quite reached that milestone yet. Most of us have uh, really blown that one in the rearview mirror. But in 33 years, what did Jesus endure? And in six hours on the cross, what did he endure? In that last 24 hours. And how did, he, how did he, was he able to navigate that? I love Hebrews chapter 12 in verse 1 and verse 2. He says, you know, wherefore, seeing that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, considering Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be faint and wearied in your mind. Yes, if we can look at our trials through cross-shaped vision, then it will make all the difference. Powerful point. Any other thoughts on Psalm 56? All right, let's get into the 60s. Go to Psalm 61. I didn't realize I had that for you. I'm sorry. I made that PowerPoint a couple of weeks ago. Is God listening? Psalm 61. Let's, let's look at that very quickly. This is a very short psalm. One of my strong readers would read that for us. Psalm 61, eight verses. Okay. Um, in uh, Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19, we are told to sing... Various categories of songs. Um, can you remember what they are? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. All right. So uh, hymns can invoke praise. Uh, spiritual songs might in- include those. In, we're told to admonish one another. So it, it's songs where we're speaking to uh, one another, or maybe encouraging faithfulness or commitment. How about psalms? What psalms do we sing? I mean, what psalms in our worship, what psalms? Okay, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The reason I ask that is the early church, as well as the Jews, sang constantly from the songbook. Uh, but we sing some psalms that are inspired by, we won't have time to get to it today, um, but that are drawn from the psalms. And that's what I mean by inspired. They're not, not to God breathed here, but it's motivated by, moved by those. There are two songs for you uh, song lovers uh, that are found in Psalm 61. Uh, any of y'all ever uh, heard that Gaither song, Lead Me to the Rock That Is Higher Than I? Thou Hast Been a Shelter for Me. Okay, I like that one. How about our brother Tillides Tedley? This, is, this makes me think, in fact, it's drawn from first three verses of this song. Hear me. When I call, O God, my righteousness, unto thee I come in weakness and distress. Y'all know that song? Both of them are drawn from the the lyrics very directly from uh, the Psalms. And when you come to this psalm, as Deborah read it so well for us, it acknowledges, the psalmist does, his dependency. But it also affirms his devotion. I find it interesting to note David's reference to God's hearing. Remember said anthropomorphism, God doesn't have actual ears, but it means that God pays attention, God sees and knows the intimate details that are going on. And so he says various ways. In verse 1, hear my cry, give heed, verse 1. I call, verse 2, implying a listener. You have heard, verse 5, and I will sing praise to your name, verse 8, which God receives. It's a beautiful 
image, isn't it? What does it convey to us about God? He's listening. When does that matter to me? Most obviously when? Okay, sometimes when we feel like nobody else is. We all, we all find ourselves there. When we pray. But when else is God listening? I always like trying to deal with these at this particular time in the class period. In about 25 minutes, we're going to go into worship. God's listening. And he's not listening to the quality of your voice. Um, he's, listening, he's listening to your heart. He is, is listening to what happens before and after as we fellowship with one another. I, I didn't mean to point this in the direction. Obviously, we know he's listening when uh, we are losing our cool with the customer service representative. He's listening to us when we're impatient uh, on the highway and we uh, begin to audibleize that out loud. He's, yeah, he's listening to all that, but this, the tone of this psalm is, is that God is listening when maybe no one else is, when I go to him in prayer and when I come to him in worship. As we break down this psalm, I think that there are at least three actions that we see from the writer. And these should mirror our response to God for all that he is and all that he's done for us. First of all, we see in this psalm an appeal. In verse 1 and 2, in verse 4, in verse 7. David pleads with God to hear his cry, to hear his prayer. He feels, as was said a moment ago, isolated. He feels detached from everybody else. He's low, he's faint. He longs for safety and he wants refuge. And he wants God to show his mercy and his truth in order to preserve him. He acknowledges his need and God's ability to meet his need. You know, we're we're in a dangerous place spiritually when we fail to see our need of God. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I fail to see my need of God is when things are going well. Jeremy, it's been two or three weeks since I've done a... Peach's reference, but I'm going to make one right now. Um, For those of you who have ever milked a cow with a machine, uh, there's a whole lot of different ways for that thing not to work. But when it works, it's clockwork. It's like 10, 15 minutes. You're in and you're out of the barn. It's wonderful. Life is great. But when there's some kind of problem, especially when you don't aren't mechanically inclined like me, and you're trying everything and you're thinking, what am I going to have to do now? She's almost done eating. I'm going to have to milk her by hand. And you know what I've had to do more than one occasion when I've exhausted all of my resources? Oh, I've been praying. I've been trying not to get a peach of stress so she holds on to her milk. You know, but if I finally get to the end, all I can do, and I'm thinking, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. Jeremy, can you please come down? No, well, Kathy's a little bit less help than I can be. I need your help. And he comes down, he can like, fiddle with the machine and he can you know, get it going and figures out one thing I hadn't checked on. And I've thought about that sometimes. Uh, I get five or six good milkings, you know. Now I'm thinking, I think about Jeremy and it's not that I'm not thinking about him, but um, it's, I feel pretty self-sufficient until the next crisis comes. Do you ever get that way with God? I'm in the throes of this and it is more than I can do by myself. I need your help. And then when the trial passes and things are going my way, I may find there's days and even weeks when I'm not reaching out to him. And I need to be saying to him when things are good, God, I know I depend on you when life is going my way. And I know it's because of your goodness and your kindness 
in your grace that this day or that life is going like it is right now. I don't need to wait until the time of crisis to reach out to Him because I always need Him. He holds life and breath and all things. By Him, all things consist. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17. And it is a grace of growth in my spiritual life when I am understanding that I depend on Him. And it's a terrible place when I don't understand what's true. And that is that I need Him every hour of every day. We're never independent of God, whether we know it or not. And so He makes an appeal. And then there's an appreciation. He credits God. He acknowledges his generosity in verse 3 and verse 5 through 7. He appreciates God's refuge, his inheritance, his preservation, and his fellowship. Gratitude is the key to contentment. When we understand, I'm going to go back to James again. James chapter 1 and verse 17. That every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation and shifting shadow. It's when we understand this that it revolutionizes our relationship with God. I'm going to appreciate, I'm going to find tangible ways to, to thank God for all that He's doing in my life. And then he ends the psalm with an aspiration, a goal. Responding to God's gifts is important. But what shows gratitude better than anything else is when we live a transformed life. When we're different as the result of our relationship with God. David wants to worship and he wants to pay vows, verse 8. David makes the point that it's worse to be separated from God's house than to be far from home. He's been given so much and so he wants to reciprocate. And Jesus is going to say this in, in, in a little different way in Luke 12, 48. He says, the one that's, that, to whom much has been given, what's the second part of that verse? Of him much shall be required. You need to make no mistake about it. God is to be worshipped because he is God, not for the blessings that he gives. But we've already been the, the beneficiaries of such great generosity So with that in mind, how can we keep from praising Him and serving Him? And so the psalmist helps us. He helps us to appreciate that very fact. And in answer to our question we began with this psalm, is God listening? Always. And He's working it out. But as we're through the valleys or up on the mountaintops, don't forget Him. All right. We got into the 60s of Psalms. We'll... We'll move on in next quarter and uh, end the second section and do those last three. Thank you very much for your attention and your comments in class.